and welcome to Tape Ops Discussion, where we call our friends and music community notables to chat about their favorite records. Enjoy. Hello, Jack. Good morning. I'm just waking up. I am not a morning person. Oh, I'm sorry. Me either. Welcome to Discussion. I'm Jeff Stanfield, and this week we have synth pioneer Suzanne Ciani discussing Glenn Gould's Goldberg Variations. Glenn Gould's Goldberg Variations. What a great treat to have you suggest this. Well, I'm so glad you appreciate it, because for me, this has stood the test of time, and it is the absolute one single album that I can't live without. It's um, so fun to go back and listen to this. I, I remember hearing it years ago, um, I think in my house growing up. Going back to it, it's uh, especially this version, it's, it, it really is is. Uh, Come, come to be a favorite of mine over the last few weeks because um, I, I listened to it with a different, a little bit of a different intent because you had sent it. So that was that was fun. Are you listening to the 1955? Right. So there are two versions of this, 55 and 81, and I've listened to both extensively. You know the backstory of this. Maybe you'd like to tell it. Well... You know, the interesting thing, I I could never put my finger precisely on, you know, I know that there was 25, 26 years between the two recordings, and that Gould, you know, the, the first recording is what made him famous. So that took off like a brush fire. Everybody was shocked. Um... And then 26 years later, he wanted to do it again. And I've never really felt comfortable with the 1981 recording. And then I, I looked at just the total time on these two CDs, just to compare them. The 1955 is 39 minutes, and the 1981 is 52 minutes. And so that really puts the finger on what is going on here. It is, you know, some of the pieces are twice as long as the 55 recording in the 81 recording. So, you know, he is an older man. He's he's saying goodbye in many ways when he recorded, I mean, this right out of the box as a young pianist. It was flamboyant and fiery and uh, just unimaginably uh, digitally perfect. But I read that he w- he went back as he got older and he would listen to those original recordings and he just felt like it was he was a different person and he felt like a lot of the tempos were too fast and that you know he had evolved as an artist and a performer and a human and and it being his most sort of known work he wanted to you know re re-record it. Yes, and he did it in the same recording studio which was quite amazing. I lived right near that studio. On, was that 30th Street? Yes, it was. And I remember when they decided to destroy it. 
and to put in that they put in this horrible apartment building, like five story apartment building. It was nothing. And they they just destroyed that magnificent studio. And, you know, I wanted to go and, you know, tie myself to the front door so they wouldn't be able to do that. But, you know, a lot of treasures in New York City were, um, you know, recycled for no good reason. Um, But anyway, so that had particular meaning to me. There's a wonderful book called Romance on Three Legs, which tells of that love story that Glenn Gould had for for the piano and the piano that he loved. And maybe, as you mentioned, you know, that this Bach a lot, you know, was for harpsichord. And he preferred the chickering piano, and he preferred a very, very dry sound. And that was not the fashion in those days. You had Rubenstein, you know, and all these big romantic pianists and the piano makers were touting the resonance and the fullness and the romantic lushness of the sound. And Gould wanted a very thin and precise black and white sound. And he was not in favor with Steinway. But he did find a piano. Anyway, this book is great because it... It talks about how, you know, the piano was destroyed. It fell off a truck. And that was it. You know, he never found another piano to fall in love with. Was that the, the Chickering or the Steinway? The Chickering. Actually, in the book, uh, you know, he's working with Steinway. And he's getting trying to get Steinway to make a very dry, non, you know, rich sounding piano. And so, you know, I haven't read the book in years, but I I think it is mostly about the Steinway. You know, 30th Street Studios, um, I mean, the amount of amazing music that came out of that studios, because that was Columbia's studio. So, you know, you had a, a huge amount of Miles Davis records that were recorded there. You had, you know, Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, um, Cliff Richard, <laughs> Chicago. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And uh, when you hear about those places being destroyed, it, it's really you're you're destroying a, a piece of history. You know, Charles Mingus, Thelonious Monk I could go on. And uh, and for nothing. I mean, what they put there was was just the ugliest little building. It was just like shocking. Yeah. Yeah, but that's the politics. You know, people get get power somehow. Um, I don't know what which piano he used on the first recording. Um, do you? Uh, Actually, I, I have the recording right here and the little booklet. Let me see if it says. Dun, da, da. Um, I didn't read any of this stuff. You know, my, my relationship with this music is just romantic and personal, and the facts, you know, might escape me. So I, it says here, well, I'll, I'll read the sentence before it, too, because it's kind of awesome. Columbia recognized his talent and tolerated his eccentricities 
On June 25th, the company issued a good-natured press release describing Gould's unique habits and accoutrements. He brought to the studio a special piano chair, bottles of pills, and unseasonal winter clothing. (laughs) Once there, he would soak his hands and arms in very hot water for 20 minutes before playing. Mm-hmm. Gould often had trouble finding a piano he liked, and the variations were recorded on a Steinway piano he'd acquired in 1955, a model CD-19, which had been shipped around the northeastern United States for his concerts. So, I guess it was a Steinway. How do you hear this record showing up in your own work? So, when I was very young, in Well, in high school, I would go in to Symphony Hall in Boston and hold my breath while Glenn Gould played. His, you know, it was breathtaking to hear the the universe of each note that he played and the, the beautiful precision. But the music... What I what I sensed was that the music was being uh, transmitted, channeled somehow, and that he was a witness to this. You know, it was not about him; it was about the music, and that precision. You know, later in my life, when I moved from classical music to electronic music, and electronic music, what fascinated me about it at first was the absolute dependability of the rhythm that that thing you could count on and Glenn Gould played you know in a certain way like a metronome but it certainly wasn't mechanistic it's just that in the Baroque period it's very close to electronic music because of that fascination with the steady, steady beat, that machine-like beat. Why they had that? I don't know. Because of the horses? I don't know. But anyway, Glenn Gould proved that you could get out of the way of the music and it would come through. He didn't use rubato. You know, if you listen to any other recordings of this music, it is just dripping with expression. And and that expression actually takes away from the music. So, you know, Glenkold has always been an example to me of the beauties of the, you know, dependable universe of machinery and the contrapuntal universe that is classical music and also electronic music. When you're working with the Buchla synthesizer, you're working in counterpoint. You have oscillators, and they each have a voice, and the voices come out, and they work together. And so maybe that explains more why he's so iconic to me and that this is the one album that I would, you know, that I can't get rid of. In fact, I'm purging my CD collection now. And there are only about four or five that are are staying. And two of them are Glenn Gould. Yeah. Do you remember when you first heard it? Oh, yes. As I said, I was in high school. And uh, 
that was when, you know, that was when I fell in love with the piano. So I would, you know, barricade myself in a room for hours at a time playing. But uh, yeah, Glenn Gould, it was in that period that I, I first heard this and heard many performances by Glenn Gould. It didn't matter what he played. It was just later, you know, that I zeroed in on this one as the consummate. And it really is, you know, so special. I mean, he plays a lot of different music. I, I have him playing uh, the Italian concerto, uh, but, but it doesn't have this magic. And it was magic. I mean, when he played in Symphony Hall, it would be summer. He would come in with a scarf and gloves and a hat. He would sit at the piano on that low bench, and he had a glass of water on the side of the piano. And if he were playing with the orchestra and there was an orchestral interlude and he didn't have to play, he would turn his back on the keyboard, throw the scarf around his neck, pick up the glass of water, and kind of go into a, you know, take five, you know, sense of just not even being there. And then when his cue came back, he would spin around, you know, with great velocity and velocity and land precisely on the piano at the moment he was supposed to enter. So it was very dramatic, very eccentric. He sang through the whole thing. Uh, it was so precious because then he stopped performing. Thanks for listening. Discussion is created by Tape Op, the creative music recording magazine. Free subscriptions are available at tapeop.com along with our regular podcast and online content.